Good evening. You turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Chapter 1. And so we have opportunity the next few weeks. I'd like to begin by considering Mary's prayer. Sometimes referred to as Mary's Magnificat. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 46, down through verse 55, called the Magnificat. You may have a heading in your Bible there. Uh, really just coming from that first phrase, verse 46, Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord, or my soul magnifies the Lord. Someone has called this a prayer of prayers. It really is uh, a prayer that's been given a lot of attention and really a, a remarkable, wonderful prayer for us to study. Let's read it together. Mary said, verse 46, my soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Even as Mary is speaking this, Luke is recording it later. This is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that she's speaking, certainly as Luke is recording. This is coming at a time when she has just met her cousin Elizabeth, her older cousin Elizabeth, who is expecting someone we heard about this morning in her old age, John the Baptist, who was a few months older than Jesus to be the forerunner of Jesus. In Luke chapter one, Mary has just heard from the angel that she would bear a son. And she asks, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel tells her the power of the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and he will be conceived in your womb, and for this reason it will be called the Son of God. And as evidence of the fact that this will happen, your relative Elizabeth is also conceived in her old age. This would become be known as John the Baptist. She and Zechariah would bring John up. He would be the forerunner to the Christ. Nothing is impossible with God. As we come to a prayer like this, I think actually of a book that uh, I've been reading and Pastor and some others have been reading called uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan, Satan's Devices. It's a good and it's a very helpful book, but really kind of the thing that the author keeps coming back to again and again is all of these devices of Satan, these things that Satan may you know, suggest or, or whisper or, or try to 
to show and demonstrate this is really what it is. Don't believe the Bible. All of these different crafts and devices and uh, uh, deceptions of the devil that he wages against, uh, that he uses to wage war against God's people, and then precious remedies against them. So here's the device. It's what he, how he writes the book, and he kind of describes what the devil may do, what truth he may slander or, or twist, and then some remedies against it. And I actually think in those terms, when I come to a prayer like this, because you may look at this and think, okay, she's the mother of the Messiah. There's only been one of those. There's a reason we talk about the virgin conception, the virgin birth, um, because it's a pretty rare thing, right? This doesn't, <laughs> this never happens. This is a miracle. So of course, this would be a, a miraculous prayer. What does this have to do with me? And maybe we can kind of put Mary in a different category than we are and not really learn some of the blessedness of her prayer. Now, what I want you to see in verse 42 is a bit of the context. Mary has heard from the angel. She goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Verse 41, uh, verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, about to come into her house, the baby, that is John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice, notice the word that comes up again and again here, and said, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Look down in verse 48, the second half of verse 48. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. So as you think about this, how is Mary blessed? She was blessed to be the mother of God in the flesh. Yes, that's blessing. I think we can kind of pigeonhole her if we think only in terms of the blessing that was bestowed on her, you could say externally, to bear the Christ child and miss the blessing that was hers by her faith, because that's not different than you or me. And that's my burden tonight for us to see in this passage, is that we not think that faith is unrewarding, that somehow it's not really worth it to live by faith, to walk by faith, that, it's, that it really is better for us to hang on to those things that we feel we control, we can control, those things that we we, we feel we cannot turn over to God because maybe he isn't trustworthy. No, faith is rewarding in and of itself. There is blessing in living by faith. And I really want you to see not just the external blessing. Of course, there is that, or that, that external blessing that Mary got to bear the Christ child. But there's also great blessing as she believed God's promises. That's what I want us to see. Believers, all believers can be blessed like this and pray like this when they believe God's promises. That's what Mary's prayer is full of. She's been thinking, someone has suggested that maybe she spent the whole time going from her house to Elizabeth's house, just meditating on Hannah's prayer or uh, Miriam's song when God led the people through the Red Sea. Hannah's prayer, she's prayed for a child. God has given her a child, First Samuel chapter one, chapter two. 
and she's just exploding with scripture as she's meditated on the word, meditated on the promises of God. We are blessed because we worship when we see God's grace by faith. We're blessed because we rejoice when we recall God's faithfulness by faith. These are the exercises of faith. Recalling God's faithfulness, seeing God's grace, living by faith in the promises of God leads to the blessing of strengthened faith. There are spiritual rewards for living by faith. So I just want to point out how Mary really was praying in faith, really just an expression of her having lived by faith. She's responding, I believe, first to God's grace to her with a a faith-filled worship in verses 46 through 50. Notice all the references to herself. Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. That's her. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And she is among those who fear him, upon whom his mercy is set for generation from generation. She's responding to the grace of God to her. And then in verses 41 through 50, or 51 through 55, she's recalling God's faithfulness with joy, but she's recalling God's faithfulness to his people, her people. He has done mighty deeds with his arm, verse 51. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. This is how he interacts with men and different kinds of people. He's filled the hungry with good things, sent away the rich empty-handed, but even more specifically than all men, the people of Israel. He has given help to Israel, his servant. Where is all of this coming from? It's really rooted in Scripture. Mary's responding first to God's grace with faith-filled worship. What is What am I calling faith-filled worship? Why do I say that? Well, I'm drawing attention to what she's doing. Mary said, she expresses it aloud, my soul exalts the Lord. She's magnifying the Lord. And I just like to point out what spiritual worship is. She's expressing it. But it really is starting within. She said, my soul exalts the Lord. This is genuine. And it makes its way all the way out her mouth. Of course, we can praise God in our hearts, but it's good to say it aloud. But she's magnifying God. This is what she's doing. She's exalting God. And she's joyful in him. She's rejoicing in God, my Savior. This idea of magnifying God is making him Great. Not that God needs us to make him great. You could say, make him appear great to others. We're extolling the greatness of God. Make him appear big to other people, as big as he really is. This is what we do when we praise God. We don't add greatness to him, but we elevate him in other people's minds. We make it apparent to others how great he is. And why do we need to do this? Well, it's natural, isn't it, to have kind of low and common thoughts of God. People need to have high thoughts of God. And we are here as ones who ought to be doing that ourselves. We are here to praise him and to bring other people to praise him and give them high and exalted, fitting, suitable thoughts of God. But then she's rejoicing. She's 
rejoicing exceedingly. This is a really intense word. It's good to make times of rejoicing, times of praising. Even you could say she's really excited to praise the Lord for what he's doing. 1 Samuel chapter 1 or chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Listen to the similarity here. Look at verses 46 and 47 while I read 1 Samuel 2. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. As Mary is exalting God, she's really drawing from this well of Scripture, exalting God according to the knowledge of the Scriptures. And we ought to do this too. We ought to make God look big to others. He is big. He is great. He deserves for men to fear him and to think highly of him. Mary is magnifying God. She makes, she makes him appear greater than he might otherwise when we're not thinking about him in right ways. But this spiritual worship that I think you'll see is really a comfort to her. Not only is she expressing it genuinely from her heart, magnifying the God who deserves to be magnified in our eyes, she's also acknowledging reality about him. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. And what does she call him? My soul exalts the Lord. I just want to point this out because uh, this is a very, I think a very key point at which we would uh, diverge from many churches, even in our own city or centers for worship. We can't call them a church. Because here Mary is calling God Lord. She's rejoicing in God, my Savior. What do you think? That's an admission of. She's acknowledging God as her Lord. And in the context here, look back at verse 31. What have the angel and Elizabeth called? When have the angel and Elizabeth used this term? Verse 31, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So she knows something about her son that is in her womb, yet unborn, that he's being given given something by the Lord God. He is a king. He is a Lord. He is, in fact, verse 35, the son of God. But then what does Elizabeth say when she meets her? In verse 43, How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Son of God. The son of his father, David. He's going to have a king to sit on the, uh, have a throne to sit on on forever. Elizabeth is believing clearly that this unborn child is her Lord. And then Mary is saying, my soul exalts the Lord. I believe there's, I think you could, argue very convincingly that Mary is admitting that this baby is her Lord and Mary herself needs a savior. And what is that? That's an admission that she is a sinner. Of course, as she is saved by grace, the Bible would call her a saint. 
but not because of her own intrinsic purity such that she deserves worship. No. She, the mother of the Christ child, is exalting that Lord above herself where he belongs and rejoicing in God who she needs as her savior because she's just like you and me. I believe this shows her faith, kind of get some insight in, in here as to what was an Old Testament saint. What did they believe? Well, she's kind of, you could say, an Old Testament saint. She's just on the other side of the, the New Testament page in our Bible, but these are Old Testament saints, right? pastor called John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. They were right at the cusp of that, that major break in, in world history. But Mary is acknowledging her master, her state before her master as a sinner, her need for salvation. So, of course, this is clear evidence that Mary by no means should be worshipped. Of course, she is blessed among men, and she says that, but she's not sinless. She's no less human by bearing the Christ child, no more pure by conceiving by the Holy Spirit. She's blessed among women, blessed indeed. But she still needed saving by that baby she bore. She still had sin that separated her from God. She still needed a sacrifice to atone for her sin and to bring her near to God. And she was trusting in that by faith. She knew these things by faith. My soul exalts the Lord. Well, did she really have to live by faith because it was happening right then? Would you believe it if an angel came and told you? Sometimes we give them less credit than perhaps they deserve for living by faith because these things really are beyond belief. This has never happened in the history of the world. Who would have thought that it would be you? Mary certainly didn't. Did she wake up that morning? No, she was living by faith in the word of God, even the word of God through this angel to her. She's worshiping God in a spiritual way. She's worshiping by faith, and it's a comfort to her. She's exalting the Lord. She knows her need of a Savior. She's expressing that, thanking God for sending someone to save her from her sin. But she's also, you see evidence here of kind of a spiritual reasoning that's just a healthy way of thinking. This is part of her blessing. What does she draw attention to in praising the Lord? He has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. She's reasoning and thinking, okay, if God has given me this, I'm calling it an external privilege. She's realizing God pays attention to humble circumstances. That's what that word means. He has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. This is giving attention to. James writes about this when he's really going after the, the Jews in the dispersion, saying, why do you give special attention to the rich who come into your assembly and tell them, come sit here and give them places of prominence? You're, you're giving them special recognition. This is the same word. This is what God does. Not to the important people, but to the people of humble and obscure circumstances. What did Hagar say about God when she named that place Bier Lahairoi? You are the God who sees. He came and he visited her when she had been driven away from Sarai. 
Mary's amazed at this. She's humbled. She's marveling that God saw her. God noticed her. He gave her his attention, and not because she was great. What is it in our world that grabs all the attention? What, what makes the headlines? It's not the mundane things. It's not the simple things, unless somehow they make money. <laughs> it's not faithfulness. It's not chastity. It's not obedience. Certainly not humility. But it does not matter to God what the headlines are in the United States of America. God writes his own headlines, doesn't he? God had regard for Mary. He had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. This is a word used for the affliction of the people of Israel in Egypt, that their humiliation, really. But poverty, maybe, is what Mary's talking about. Obscurity. God paid attention to her despite her obscurity, perhaps even because of her obscurity. And Matthew Henry said, this draws our minds towards someone like Gideon the least and the weakest of his clan. Why did God go all the way down the pecking order and give him an army of such strength and then whittle it down to such weakness of 300 men who didn't even bring a sword to the fight? God doesn't look on the outward appearance to judge greatness. Do you remember that? When God said that to Samuel about David, God looks on the heart. And what is he looking for in the heart? He's searching for faith. And by his grace, Mary had it. She's reasoning spiritually here, realizing God has done this. And that way of thinking by faith is a blessing to her. It's not just the fact that she's pregnant with Jesus, the one who would save her from her sin, but that she knows this about God, that God sees her in her humble circumstances. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. It's not that she was looking for self-advancement, but she's reasoning in a way that she realizes God is providing a lasting legacy for her. What a privilege to bear the Son of God. And this, if you're following my distinction here, this really is an amazing external blessing, one that no one else could claim. What a remarkable honor to carry the Messiah of the Jews. This was a privilege to be given that responsibility. No doubt it was a joy to carry it out, to nurture him. Can you imagine teaching a son wisdom where there is no resistance and everything that he receives that's true, he just drinks it in and immediately is applying it and living it out. Jesus had to grow in these things, but she got to teach him and see him grow. What a privilege. He's the Messiah that... She and her family, her parents, her grandparents had longed for, no doubt, taught her about. And we do call her blessed among women, don't we? We read about her in the Bible. I actually heard some of my family members talking about her at Thanksgiving. What was it like to be Jesus' mom? That is a truly unique privilege. She was blessed among women. Other religions speak in a way that is inappropriate and unbiblical about her blessedness. This is not purity or divinity. 
but we shouldn't neglect the blessing she did have to bear him. And she's reasoning, God has provided this for me. This is a great honor. Four, verse 49, the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. She's reasoning, thinking about God's accomplishing of mighty deeds in this case. She's focusing on his, on his might, on his holiness, on his mercy, on his faithfulness in this verse and the next. Of course, God caused her to conceive in her womb the Son of God. That is a mighty deed. And he did it while she was a virgin. That is a mighty deed. The virgin conception is. This is the Messiah sent at the fullness of times, Matthew Henry says, long awaited, finally delivered. This is a mighty deed on behalf of God. And he is holy. There is no one like him. He is entirely pure and set apart from sin. And this mighty arm, which cannot be resisted, this holy God, he has set his eyes on her to exalt her and to bring out his will through her. The mighty one has done great, great things for me. And holy is his name. And God really does deserve to be feared. All of this is really humbling her, making her, putting her in awe of God. And she's recalling from actually Psalm 103, which we considered last week. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. What is the blessedness of this kind of statement how is she reasoning? She realizes, I have feared the Lord, and his mercy is upon me. And this is a comfort to her. And it makes her want to fear God more and love God more. Because of all this that God is and that God does, we ought always to fear him. Isn't this, isn't this how God works? Isn't this his unique excellence that he shows mercy at all, but toward those who fear him, not to give them what is deserved. Mercy isn't the same as winking at sin. He's full of mercy, yes, but not toward those who refuse to turn from sin. So what do they say in the, in the, in the Psalms and the Proverbs? Fear the Lord and turn from evil. This is, this is the action of fearing the Lord. Take him seriously. Turn away from sin. You know that he's going to be merciful if you fear him and turn from sin. Why would you continue on in sin? Fear the Lord. Know that he's a just judge and he will punish your sin if you don't turn. God deserves to be feared. He's worthy to be feared. And he's gracious. In all of this, Mary is reasoning and thinking, remembering by faith. She realizes that what she knows about God from the scriptures applies to her in a grand and marvelous way. And this is a great comfort to her soul. She has been blessed by God, not only to have this child in this way at this time, but to know that all of these promises really apply to her too. That, that understanding by faith is, that is blessing. That is the blessing of faith. But then she turns to, to a more public sphere and she starts recalling some of God's faithfulness in how he deals with people and how he has dealt with Israel. So notice first God's might in his dealings with men. 
verse 51, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. She kind of already said that, but she's talking not just towards her, but towards all kinds of people. Verse 51, the second half, those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. This is a mighty deed, exalting those who are humble. It's mighty that he filled the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty-handed. This is the might of God with all different kinds of people. And what does he do? I like this quote from Matthew Henry said, in the course of his providence, it is God's usual method to cross the expectations of men and proceed quite otherwise than they promise themselves. Men in their pride and their greatness, oh, it will be this way. And God in his usual ways of promise, providence crosses them and does exactly the opposite of what they have thought and foreseen into the future. This is exactly what James is talking about. Shouldn't you instead say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that? You're, you're saying we're going to go to this place and we're going to live and do this and that and make a profit. No, if the Lord wills, you will do that. If you're going to be so arrogant, you should expect that God is going to cross you. And that's what you see here, all sorts of reversals. And there's something about this. I don't know where it comes from. Maybe it's the image of God in us that we, we really love those twists of justice where it really comes to those who deserved it. Maybe our danger is where we want to exact that ourselves. But what does God do? He scatters the, the proud. This is, this is like seed thrown on the ground or sheep scattered from a shepherd. Think of those who gathered at the Tower of Babel. Do you remember what they said? We should assemble ourselves to build up a city to the heavens so that we will not be scattered all over the earth. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. No, let's gather in one city. Let's go up and be like God. Maybe this is Nimrod animating them to do this. We don't want to go everywhere. We want to be one people. We want to ally ourselves against God. And what did God do? He scattered them in the most remarkable way. They woke up and they didn't know tie the next day. We've been reading in Joshua about them conquering the land. Do you remember what those Canaanite kings did on several different occasions? This king, they never had an alliance with this king over here, but let's gather one, two, three, four kings on one occasion. And they bring out this numerous army against the people of God. They're assembling against him. And what happens to those kings? Their armies get scattered from them. In their pride, they assemble themselves against God. Why do the nations rage? Why do they devise a vain thing like opposing God, assembling themselves to oppose God? That's pride to think that they could thwart his plan, but in his might, he scatters them. This is what God does. No doubt this is what Mary is thinking of. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. We can avert God's plan to give the land to his people. We can thwart God's justice. We can frustrate God's plan to scatter us all over the earth. -uh -uh. God can just all of a sudden rewire your brain so you learned a different language. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who are humble, humiliating rulers, exalting 
the humble, this is like Pharaoh brought down from his throne, how far? All the way to the bottom of the sea. Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up in his mind, brought all the way down to the cow fields. Or even like it would be in a few short years, Herod, smitten with worms. And as he removes these ones from their pompous throne, he puts in their place men like Joseph, brought up from prison. David, brought from the sheepfolds to replace proud Saul. Mordecai, exalted to just below Ahasuerus at the expense of wicked Haman, right? Job, raised from the ashes. Ruth, honored from the fields. God exalts the humble. And he provides for the needy. And he rejects the self-sufficient. And I believe that's the sense in verse 53. He sends away the rich, empty-handed. This isn't some kind of uh, classism or anything like that. This, this, I don't believe it's a statement about the wickedness of riches, although there are dangers in riches, but the, the self-sufficiency that comes with them. You remember that God provided for the widow and her son in the drought of Elijah's day. And he fed Elijah himself by the ravens. But he let wicked, wealthy Ahab feel the pinch of famine, didn't he? You troubler of Israel. That's what he called Elijah. You certainly see this in Jesus, sending away empty those who would not turn from their wealth to follow him. They didn't need anything. So they wouldn't come to him but sending away with eternal life those who came to him needy and believing. You see this very clearly in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus went on to, into eternal comfort because he trusted in Christ, and the rich man was condemned to hell, not because he was rich, but because he never saw his need for a Savior. And Jesus rightly says how hard it is for the rich to pass through the narrow gate. And the disciples marvel, how can a camel go through the eye of a needle? It's impossible. Well, with men, these things are impossible, but with God, all things are impossible. God saves some. You see this in the church in Revelation, those, uh, the church, I believe, of Laodicea, that they're wealthy and they're lukewarm because of it. But God says, don't you realize you're, you're naked and blind and sick? You need a savior. God provides for the needy. He fills the hungry with good things and sends away the rich empty-handed. But this isn't just towards the proud and the humble and the sufficient and the needy. This is really most specifically towards his people Israel. God is merciful to his people Israel. And Mary, as she thinks on these things, she exalts the Lord for these things. And she is just reminded that God is doing this for her. And this is her blessing the blessing of her faith. God gives relief to Israel. God recalled his mercy to Israel. He revisited his promises to Israel. He comes to their aid is what she says. He's given help to Israel. No other nation receives this kind of special attention, this tender, caring, forgiving attention as that nation has received throughout its history. Moses, Gideon, Elisha, 
Solomon, Hezekiah, all of these deliverances, these provisions. He does this for those who are privileged enough to be slaves in his house. Isn't that what she says? He has given help to Israel, his servant, even to be a slave in the house of God. Is better than all the riches this world could offer. And he did it in remembrance of his mercy or as the way he remembers his mercy. He is merciful to them, not giving them what they deserve. But he also made merciful covenants to them, which he upholds in pity upon his people, even though they don't deserve them. And the reason is he gave his word long ago. And when God swears, he does not change his mind. In remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to Abraham, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. God spoke to Abraham. He promised to him and the generations after him to multiply them greatly, to give them the land of Canaan as their possession, to exalt the tribe of Judah, to put a son of David on the throne forever, to send the Messiah at the right time to rescue them. Mary is seeing the promises to Abraham, the promises through Moses, the promises to David, all of these promises now converge on her and her family. What an overwhelming and privilege and joy to one who lives by faith in those promises. This is what God was looking for. This is what God found in Mary. Not that she was more worthy than others, but she was a woman of faith. And you see that in her prayer. She lived by faith in these promises. She remembered the reason we are special is because God has given us these promises. And I hope, I know he will keep these, he will bring them to pass. This is the great thing about all these events for Mary and Elizabeth. Not just being pregnant, although that's a joy. Not just being pregnant with the Messiah. She could wrap her head around that but that God was keeping all his promises and she had a front row seat to it. There is something to be said about getting front row, right? This is the might of God to do all that he planned despite all of these outward hindrances. And this is the mercy of God to visit his people and accomplish their redemption through his son. So you are blessed, Christian, when you believe God's promises. Don't let Satan tell you that it's, it's not worth it. That what's the point of thinking about these promises and hoping in them? When you see them fulfilled, what a joy it is. You will see them fulfilled and you will worship. And as you do, your, your faith is strengthened in your great God. Most blessed are you among men and women. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I do believe that's the key there in Elizabeth's words in verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what he had spoken to her by the Lord. Certainly that's what the angel said to her, but she believed it and she believed all these promises. And that was her blessing. And may the Lord give us that blessing as we live by faith in his words, taking him at his word that he will bring it to pass. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are true and mighty and nothing will stop you from doing exactly what you've said. Forgive us for those times, Lord, when we doubt that you could bring something to pass. And Lord, forgive us from those times when we 
wonder about the value of running our minds over and over your promises. Because they are precious and they're true, even if we haven't seen them totally fulfilled yet. Lord, there are many promises that we live out on a daily basis. I trust as we're turning from sin and receiving your forgiveness, promises of your presence and your help and your comfort. Lord, as we think on these and and claim them by faith and see you uh, true to them day in and day out, pray that you would strengthen our faith and give us the blessing of faith that comes as we believe you. There is blessedness in believing, and we praise you for that. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.